Welcome to the Point Church Teaching Podcast. I'm Corey Ickes, one of the pastors here at Point Church in Fort Liberty. We seek to exalt Jesus and equip the saints through expositional preaching and teaching. I hope you're encouraged and uplifted from this week's teaching. Kevin did such a faithful job last week in chapter 10 where we see this this need for people to respond in faith to Christ. And also the urgent need for the believer to take up heralding the gospel, proclaiming it out, out of a sense of urgency because there is lost around us, surrounding us, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. And then this week in chapter 11, we're going to see that God is actively extending His grace throughout redemptive history. And when I say redemptive history, what I'm talking about is God saving people to Himself in the past, in the present, and in the future. All of redemptive history. So if you think about these three chapters in a unit, chapter 9 is we're looking at God's sovereignty over salvation like under a microscope. I mean, we're, we're digging down deep. And then chapter 10, we kind of, there's this rubber meets the road mentality of the particulars of the gospel and the faithful response to it, which is repentance and belief. And then the faithful response to then proclaim it. And today we look at chapter 11 and it's like exploring the cosmos through a telescope. Where, where we're looking at God's redemptive history of salvation from, from past, present, and future. And we are going to be encouraged while simultaneously having our minds a bit blown at how big God's salvation is. One of the goals for today is, as you consider uh, the text, is that we need to move from a small view of salvation. They just uh, that it's strictly individual idea of salvation and understand God's individual salvation in light of His redemptive plan from, from time past all the way into the future. And so what, what my goal is, is that as we leave, that we have a higher, more awestruck view of who God is and His salvation. That we would move from a small, compartmentalized, individualistic salvation to a glorious picture of God's redemption. So, as we consider the glorious grace of God in all of redemptive history, here is the thrust. This is the main point. We must bow and behold Him. We must bow down, and that act of bowing is, is it's an act of submission. It's an act of humility because we are not God, right? And so there is a great need for us to posture our hearts and our attitudes before God in bowing down at His greatness and His glory. But we also need to behold Him, which is, which is to hold and, and to look up and attempt to just to see the incredible magnitude of who God is and it drive us to worship. 
You see, a lot of times I think the, the notion of just kind of, hey, I prayed a prayer and I've been saved and, you know, one day I guess Jesus will come back and take us. And that, that kind of be small and old and frail. But as we look today, we see just how big God's salvation is and how, how, how it, it's mysterious, how it's sometimes even hard to wrap our brains around, and yet all of that should make us behold Him and go, what a mighty God we serve. So I want us to pray now and ask the Lord to open our eyes and our ears to the Scriptures. Lord, we thank You for Your Scripture. God, we thank You that it is so, uh, it's so reliable. It is the truth. Lord, we don't have to search anywhere else for truth. God, it doesn't change. It's not compromised. Lord, we entrust ourselves to Your Word. And I'm praying today that You'd change us. That You would would take us from where we are this morning and that we would all respond in, in just humble, worshipful bowing before You. And Lord, that we're beholding you in, in, in praise and worship and adoration because of your incredible salvation. Lord, teach us to be a worshiping people that stand in all of you. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we look at God's grace throughout all of history, we must bow and behold him. Romans 11 We're just going to read a few sections at a time. So Romans 11, verse 1, Paul here asking questions as he's done throughout this entire unit where he he comes up with this question from like essentially pushback and then he responds. And so he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah and how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But verse 4, but what is God's reply to him? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. See, the first thing that I want us to understand as we consider God's salvation throughout all of history is that there is grace in a remnant of people. So, we're talking specifically about Israel. We're talking about Jews. And what we're seeing in this current period is that there is a remnant. There is a group that God has has chosen to uh, to pour out his grace on, a remnant of Israel. So, Corey, why does this matter? Well, this matters because of the question that Paul asked Has God rejected His people? Paul says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Has God rejected His covenant people? 
but there is a remnant. So we know that primarily or in majority, Jews, Israel has rejected the Messiah. And they have, they have chosen to uh, ignore the, the Christ who came. They've chose to, to reject Him currently. But we see that God has lavished His grace to a remnant. But Paul begins to build this case. Has God rejected his people? And he first, in verse 1, he says, absolutely not. And he gives personal testimony of his own life in which he says, I myself am a Jew. I myself am a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And I have been, I have been lavished by God's grace and salvation. So there's this resounding no, but he doesn't just stop at his personal testimony, but then he moves to kind of this, this theological notion that God has, has not, um, he has not rejected those he foreknew, which has a, is, is a part of God's choosing. We, we covered that in Romans 8, the end of Romans 8, and in Romans 9, in which we see that God demonstrates his mercy by giving grace to people that didn't deserve it. And so Paul says, hey, I am living proof that God has not rejected his people. And he goes on and he says, and God would not reject those that he has foreknown, that he has chosen. But thirdly, he gives this other example from 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah is running from Jezebel and he's hiding in a cave and he's praying and the Lord comes to him and says, hey, what are you doing? And Elijah just, I mean, he just pours out this, Lord, I'm the only one left. I am all by myself. They have completely given up the ghost. They have rejected. They've all, they've all gone away. They've all bowed a knee to Baal. They've all, they've torn down your altars. And listen to the kindness and grace of God. What he says there in verse 4, I have kept. For myself, 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. See, I love that when you consider the whole scripture and you look at God's incredible promises to, uh, to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to David, to Noah, you see there's these promises and what happens in the scriptures is that there, there is points in which those promises are like a person away from failing. It's, what, it's some of the most terrible. I mean, think about Noah and the flood. There was this promise that, that God would, uh, that he would uphold and that there was a Messiah coming and we were a family away from utter mass destruction like no one left, but the faithfulness of God remained through a family. Isn't that crazy? We see that through Abraham in which he's, he's promised offspring that it's going to be like sand on the seashore. And yet, what happens? He can't bear a child for over, I mean, for, for decades. To where he even attempts to, to kind of figure it out himself. But God gives one, defying all odds. You see, don't let the almosts, that, like the promise almost failed. Don't let that distract you and deter you 
but allow the faithfulness of God against all odds in a human sense. Allow that to drive you to worship. Elijah's bemoaning, everybody's gone. And the Lord says, no, there, there are men who have not bowed a knee that I have chosen. And so Paul then begins to provide commentary and he says, these ones, they're chosen by grace. You see, God's saving work has been the same. It's by grace. It's, it's through faith that even in keeping the law, it was those who were, that had faith. Not in themselves, but in the one true God. He reiterates, they were chosen by grace. Verse 6, but if it is by grace, it's no longer the basis of works. Just destroying any notion that those chosen, this remnant, that they somehow did something to earn God's approval. But he says it is by grace. And then he doubles down and says it's by grace. And if it's, if it's by works, then grace ceases to be grace. And so the, the whole idea that this remnant had somehow did something right or had managed to to, to, to scrape up some of their own righteousness to put forth, Paul just doubles down and says, every bit of this is the grace of God. It is us getting what we don't deserve. And I just want to remind you that in Jesus, all that you have is grace. And that there's nothing that, that we haven't kind of scraped up some righteousness that we can kind of put forth and go, but Lord, look at me. Because if that's true, then grace ceases to be grace. So let's entrust ourselves to the goodness and grace of God. We see it in his faithfulness to Israel currently that though the majority have rejected, there are some in which God has lavished his grace on. So he goes on in verse 7 and asks another question. What then? Has Israel failed to obtain what they were seeking? And Paul very matter-of-factly clarifies that Israel has not failed. That, that this covenant relationship that God has with Israel has not failed because, he says, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So there's this imagery that we pull from Romans 9 in which we see God choosing to give mercy to people. Electing to, to give mercy to people who did not deserve mercy. Anybody here deserve mercy? Right. And Paul says, did they, fail to, did they fail to get what they were seeking? No, because in God's faithfulness, look at this, he lavishes grace and mercy and enables them to obtain it. And, and I just want you to know, in Christ... You have been enabled to attain it by his mercy and his grace. So let's talk about this hardening because that's a, that's a scary idea. But there's this picture and we're about to see it kind of and, and tackle it in verse 11. But there's this thing about God has uh, the elect have obtained, but those that did not have been hardened. And we, we covered hardening in chapter 9 where the Lord is actually giving over people to their already godless and wayward desires. That, that it's not something that He needs to plant in our hearts, 
because by our sin, we are just de facto rebels, right? If you're wondering, you just like parent little children and see that little rebel in them. Look deeply at yourself and see the rebel in you, but by the grace of God. So the beauty in helping us understand God's history of salvation is that first and right now as it pertains to Israel and all the covenant promises that God had granted the people of God, Israel, the questions are, have they failed? Has God rejected them? And the answer is a resounding no. But in His sovereignty and His grace, He has spared a remnant. And why is that important? Because we are banking on those same promises that the Lord will, per, that He will cause us to persist and endure, and His promises will not go bankrupt. Right? Amen. So, second thing I want us to see: God currently has given grace to a remnant. But the second thing, and the largest part of this sermon, is that there is grace throughout all of redemptive history. But we're looking at Israel, not just presently, but we're beginning to look at Israel in the future. Corey, why, why are we looking at Israel? I mean, we, we're not anywhere near Israel. Like, why is this important? Because it's God's covenant people. All right? And the point is, is that you don't need to go and become a, a, a Jewish scholar or anything like that. I mean, if you want to, that's fine. But you just need to understand that we as Gentiles have been tied together with true Israel. And that there is, a, there is something significant that I wouldn't even pretend to begin to, to wrap my mind fully around. But there has, we have been tied together and it's through the grace of God. And so... We look, and Paul, who's writing to Gentiles, felt like it was very important for us to understand how God's salvation to Israel is being worked out. And you know why? Because it also shows our place in God's redemption story, His salvation story. See, we want to make it all about us. Like when you read a story about a hero, who do you read yourself into be? The hero. Am I wrong? And so when even as we talk about salvation, what I was saying earlier is a lot of times we make it all about just us. Like we're, like we're the, the main deal, like we're center stage, but I need you to understand that God is center stage in salvation. And it's not me, and it's actually not even the Jews, but it's God demonstrating His power that is center stage and what, what should be driving people that were that are from Jewish descent and Gentile descent to be bowing on their face and beholding God. We see grace throughout all of redemptive history. So Paul asks another question in verse 11 where he says, has Israel stumbled to fall? Like, have they tripped in order to fall? Was, and what is it referring to? It's referring back to this hardening in verse 7. Like, have they essentially just been hardened to then be rejected fully is the question. And listen in verse 11. Paul says, by no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Had 
has God, has Israel stumbled so that they can just be fully rejected? And Paul says in a resounding way, absolutely not. But they have rejected currently, listen, in order, in order that through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. You see, like, unless somebody in here has Jewish origin, we're Gentiles in the room. This is like real big news to us. Like this, this is kind of the whole deal and why it's important for us to understand God's salvation in this, in this massive kind of cosmic way because Paul is making it very clear that because of the, the rejection, the hardening of the hearts of Israel, it allowed for the Gentiles to come in. See, God's heart is for the nation. We see that throughout the scriptures. We, I mean, we see that even in the, I mean, in the, 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 prime of, of Israel's history and, and, their, and their reign as, as the people of God and, and, and their kingdoms. But in the midst of all of it, we see God's heart was for the nations. That, that there was things built into the law that were, to be, uh, that were to be generous and hospitable to the sojourner, to the outsider. That they were, they were, to only, they were not to, to, uh, to glean or harvest the edges of their field for the, for the passerby, for the, for the alien stranger that they could come and glean out of their blessed field. See, there was this, there's always been a, a heart for the nations. We see this through the likes of Rahab and God's use and, and his grand plan to spare the Israelites. Lord, there is incredible evidence that God has a heart for all people because He created them. And so, in His kindness, here's this. Listen to this. Allow this to kind of begin to, to stir your heart to your own salvation. In His kindness, there is a hardening in Israel in order that we could be softened and come in. It says so to, to, to make Israel jealous. This picture is not uh, like it's sinfully jealous, but like that they, are, that they are being caught up going, man, we want what they have. Consider the, the incredible faith that broke in to Gentiles in the, when we read in the Gospels and things in which there was just so much joy and freedom Remember the one who, uh, the, the lady that was, uh, that was at the table and, and the disciples were trying to shoo her away and she was like, just, but if I could just have the crumbs. And God delights in the nations and in His kindness and His grace. He's allowed Israel to be hardened for the Gentiles to come in. And now we begin to get into this picture of an olive tree, okay? So just bear with me. You've got a tree, all right? And this tree is representative of the people of God, all right? God's chosen people. And there's this, uh, this root, all right? And that's rooted in like the, in the patriarchs and, and God's covenant promises to the patriarchs, to the fathers of Israel. And then you've got natural branches, which is, which is ethical Israel, uh, ethnic Israel, and you've got wild branches, wild shoots, and that's the Gentiles. 
Okay, And so let me read to you as it begins to describe, Paul begins to use this, this picture to help communicate what is happening right now. So, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Amen? So as to make Israel jealous. Verse 12, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So, so there's, there's something here, and I just want to be, I just want to be really upfront. This is a, this is a challenging text of Scripture, okay? And so I want to preach it with humility, as in like, I, I didn't pin it. I've studied it. I feel like I understand it. But I, I want you to read, and if you feel tension, I'm just saying, me too, okay? Can we all say, me too? Like, it's okay, if you feel tension, because it's being preached in tension. Verse 13, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. So he's speaking to us in so much that then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, thus save some of them. So remember, Paul is consistently speaking from his burden for the Jews. He desires, he even tells us in chapter 9, that he wishes he could give his salvation away in order that the Jews would be redeemed. And so his ministry that God gave him was to the Gentiles, but he's going, I make my every effort for my fellow Jews to be jealous so that some would be saved. Verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. But if the root is holy, so are the branches. So there's this imagery here of an olive tree and a lump of dough. And, and he's getting at this picture that, that salvation for the Jews, like if their rejection is life, for the Gentiles, for us, that what will their inclusion mean for us? There's, there's this beauty and, and this tying together of Jews and Gentiles into the family of God that we, we become like, that there's a future hope of this bounty, of this blessing through God's people. But he goes on. Verse 17. So there's grace. God has lavished His grace to the Gentiles in this particular moment through the hardening of Israel. But verse 17, he's speaking to the Gentiles. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. So he's talking to Gentiles going, hey, listen, if some of those natural branches... Israel have been broken off like they're because of their disobedience they have been hardened and and that we as Gentiles this this olive this this wild olive branch that's grafted in so we're talking about I mean anybody here like plant grafting it's a thing where you can like attach other uh, species and 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 cross I mean it's I don't have a degree in it it's amazing but the point is clear that God has made a way for the wild olive branch to be grafted into the tree, the family of God. Amen? That's good news. 
That's good news. But he tells us, hey, listen, if that happens, like I'm speaking to you Gentiles, don't miss it. Verse 18, do not be arrogant towards the branch. Do not be arrogant. You see, great news, Gentiles have been grafted in by the mercy and grace of God. Gentiles have been grafted in. We've been tied in. We are a part of the tree, the family of God. But with that comes this stern warning. Do not be arrogant or prideful. So the function of the Gentiles being grafted in is to create jealousy or desire for the Jews to return and receive Christ, the Messiah, and His salvation. But then there's this stern warning for the Gentiles in the room that we dare not look down on the natural branch that's broken off. You see, there's this, there's this thing in us where we want to receive all the grace, and yet by our own hearts want to withhold the others, right? And Paul, speaking to the, the incredible unity that is found in Christ is speaking to Gentiles going, hey, do not be arrogant. Do not be arrogant to the branches that have been broken off. And then he issues this warning. I mean, listen to this. If you, if you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Hey, in your arrogance, don't forget that you're not the one keeping this tree alive. But it's the root that keeps the tree alive. He goes on and says, then you'll say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. So he's, he's now, at, it's like a Gentile saying, but hey, listen, these branches, they were broke off so I could be on there, like in this haughty spirit. And Paul quickly lets them know. Verse 20, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Hey, that's, that is a terrifying piece of Scripture. There is this warning to the Gentiles. As we, as, as we consider where we fit in God's redemptive salvation, in which he, has, he made promises to Israel that we, because of Christ, are slipping into, that we have, we have found ourselves in these promises. But Paul, for the sake of unity, for the sake of clarity, for the sake of love, he calls the Gentiles and says, do not be arrogant, but fear but fear the Lord. And there's this, there's this call and this warning to perseverance, but, but to, um, to being presumptuous. 
Like, like he says, hey, don't forget, you don't keep the tree alive, branch. The root does. Don't forget where you are. Kind of like when the whole idea in Romans 9 about the clay standing up to the potter and going, excuse me, I have some suggestions on, on what I could be made into. Do not find yourself to be presumptuous in your salvation and in your standing before God. We need to find ourselves bowing before the Lord in absolute uh, humility and, and thankfulness and praise that we have been counted with Christ. We dare not look down our nose at anyone, Jew or Gentile. Well, they don't, they look, they don't really look the part. Or, you know, they're in that group or, or that group or, or that group and, and we just don't really know about them and they, they do things a little different than we do. We dare not find ourselves to be presumptuous to the things that concern God. We find ourselves as blind beggars who have received the riches of Christ and we need to stay right there and behold Him and praise Him and champion the, the mystery that is salvation and dare not become experts in who and who is not in. Listen to this. Gentile believers, this is a quote from a seminary professor of mine, Dr. Marita. Gentile believers should not be presumptuous or arrogant, but should continue in faithfulness. This is a call to faithfulness, family. Preserving faith walks in gratitude to God and in the fear of God. This attitude not only pleases the Lord, but it also is necessary for cultivating the unity that God requires among the saints. As Paul will say later in Philippians chapter 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Cliff Notes. We dare not find ourselves to be cocky or presumptuous about our faith. Paul's exhortation to work out our salvation in fear and trembling is that we are constantly, we're not always doubting. Doubting is, there's a healthy doubt, but there's this, there is this function of our faith in which we are always ensuring that we are in keeping with our proclamation in Jesus. That, that when I claim Christ, that he's redeemed me, that he's my king, that my life, my mind, my words are matching up to what I claim. If I claim grace, but yet refuse to extend grace, then I need to be careful. If I claim salvation in the lavish grace of God, and yet I look at others and go, well, I'm not really sure, we begin to tread on presumptuous waters. The whole point is that there is a mystery and, and a, there is a cosmic nature to our salvation between Israel and the Gentiles that is bigger than you and me. And that needs to drive us to worship. That drives us to bowing before the Lord and beholding Him. He goes on. In God's grace in all of redemption, there is a mystery to Israel being saved. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. We've already talked about this. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
There is a profound mystery that there is a hardening. I read, I don't know who said it, but it's phenomenal. It wasn't my idea, okay? So I'm just putting that out there. Credit to somebody else. But this boomerang effect of salvation in which Israel rejects, right? Like a boomerang, they reject, and with that rejection allows for the Gentiles to come in. But here, eventually, that boomerang is going to circle back, and there be an opportunity for Israel to be saved. Now, I'm going to jump down for the sake of time because there is a critical aspect to this mystery of Israel being saved, and that is the question in which it says all of Israel is to be saved. If you look, let me find it. 26, thank you, brother. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them where I take away their sins. There's a lot of dispute on how all of Israel will be saved. Are we talking like every Israelite that's ever existed? So the people that are way smarter than me have kind of laid out three possibilities. Is this the church like Jews and Gentiles combined? Probably not. Is it just the remnant that we've kind of talked about that's been saved through history? Or is it that they're a salvation of an end time generation of Jews? In which when the fullness, as the scriptures say, when the fullness of the Gentiles has been met, God has chosen that there will be a, a boomerang effect in which the gospel will then be received by a generation of Jews. So here's what's tricky about this part of the text is this is future stuff. Like, this is stuff that has not happened. This is stuff that, that we can, as, as human beings and as not God, we can just put our minds to and we can study. But at the end of the day, we can't make a final decision because Paul himself doesn't clarify. But most likely, and this is where I come, this is where I land and where I'm preaching from, is that there will be a future generation of, of, Israel, of Jews towards the end time, like the return of Christ, that will receive the gospel. Now, the emphasis here is that he, Paul calls this a mystery, but I love a, a commentator from my ESV Bible says this, it's not a mystery as in like it's hidden, but that it's unexpected, that it's going to happen in a way that has yet to be revealed. When we're talking about the end times family, we don't know because we're not there yet. But what we do know is that God in his grace is sovereign over salvation in the past, in the present, and in the future. And what we do know is that it is his grace that any Jew has ever come to faith in Christ. And it's his grace that any Gentile has come to faith in Christ. And it will be his grace moving forward in the future towards the return of Christ in which a Jew or a Gentile comes to Christ. It's his grace, family. And this is where I want us to live is that I don't have, a, a, I don't have this argument or this text fully worked out because it has yet to be worked out. But this is the magnitude and the cosmic nature of God's salvation. It's bigger than you and me. It's bigger than us. And so what we do is when we read things that kind of blow our minds like that little emoji, we worship. We worship. So 
Let's get to the very end in which Paul moves all this theology of God's sovereignty over salvation and how it's going to work out in the past, the present, and the future Israel and where the Gentiles find ourselves tied together with Israel. He moves to a hymn of praise because, see, when we consider the sovereignty of God and salvation, it must cause us to bow and behold and listen to the end of chapter 11 in which... Paul charts this incredible doxology. Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? Verse 36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be glory forever and ever. Family, here's the takeaway, is that God's ways are inscrutable. They are higher than our ways. We don't get to pretend that we understand. We don't get to presume that we've got it all figured out. Isaiah and the psalmist go like, I mean, who, who are we to be God's counselors? Who are, like, what have we done for God that He somehow needs to pay us back? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'd like everybody to bow your head. That doxology needs to be taped to your dresser, to your dash of your car, uh, written in your Bible, highlighted, tattooed on your forearm, whatever you need to do. But we need that glorious truth to be absolutely written on our hearts. We need the, 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 the cosmic goodness of God, the grace that He has lavished on Israel and on the Gentiles. The fact that He chose to save any one of us is sheer grace and mercy. And we need to posture ourselves before the Lord God, bowing our hearts before Him. And beholding, oh, the depths of his riches and wisdom and knowledge. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Let's caution ourselves against the presumptive attitude that we know better than God. Let's, let's caution ourselves about looking down on those who have rejected Gentile or Jew. Let's caution ourselves against finding ourselves in a place of pride or arrogance lest we realize that we actually were never truly redeemed. You see, this salvation is so much bigger than just you. He truly, if you're in Christ, He has truly saved you. But you need to understand that His salvation is cosmic. It has been going on for thousands of years and it will continue to go on until the fullness of time allow that to drive you to your knees father i pray for every believer in the room god that we we would walk out of this room with a larger maybe you've got more questions than answers but allow those questions to drive you to your knees in worship and in pursuit of christ and his word 
Lord, allow this truth to, to blow our minds about the, the, just the sheer size of your salvation and the complexity and, and even the mystery of it. But Lord, would we just go, blessed be the name of the Lord. Like you, you I, I don't understand your ways. You're so high above us. God, would we find ourselves with a bigger view of who you are, a greater view of your salvation. And would we become vessels of worship and praise, beholding your glory. But Lord, would it also drive believers to a proclamation of the gospel that we don't just understand that it, it all revolves around us, but God, that we are, we are lavishly proclaiming the gospel to those near and far, those who we think might be close, those who might be so far away that it seems like they can never be saved. Lord, would we proclaim the gospel? And for any friend in the room that is yet to know Jesus, God, I pray that you would draw them now. Thank you for listening to this week's teaching. If you'd like to learn more about how you can be a part of what God is doing here at Point, connect with us at www.pointchurch.live. Thank you.